Today is a very special day. Uh, we are very excited to share this with you, a fascinating couple of people sharing some fascinating stories on Palm Sunday. But first, check this out. You had a pretty amazing experience while kayaking on a river in Chile. Your kayak got lodged in some boulders and you were underwater how many minutes? The people who resuscitated me would say I was underwater 30 minutes. Wow. So talk us through that day. What happened? I went over a waterfall that had a tremendous volume and a lot of current. And as my boat rocketed down, the front end became stuck or pinned in the rocks underwater, and the boat and I were immediately and completely submerged under about eight or ten feet of water. And I very quickly knew that I was likely going to die, and at that point I completely surrendered the outcome to God's will. And the moment I asked that God's will be done, I was immediately and very physically held by Christ and reassured that everything would be fine. You were a tenured college professor, University of Kentucky, and uh, an avowed atheist. And yet, while taking students on a, on a tour of museums in Europe, something happened that radically changed your life. Why don't you tell us about it? In 1985, I took a group of students around Europe to go to art museums, and um, my wife was along on that trip, and we had been all over um, Europe, Germany, Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and now we were spending a week in Paris, France, and we were on the last day. The next day, we were going back to Amsterdam to fly out, and 11 o'clock in the morning, I had a perforation of my small stomach. And I thought I'd been shot because it was, um, I was standing there talking to a student with my wife in the hotel, and then the next minute I was on the ground kicking and screaming and yelling with the most acute pain that I've ever experienced in my life. And I went unconscious. I awoke from that, and I felt wonderful. And I, the first thing, I was like, why do I feel so good? I just felt the worst I'd ever felt in my entire life. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't breathe, and now I'm like Superman. So we're going to hear from these two being interviewed by John Burke, our senior pastor here in just a moment. But I want to set the stage, because we're calling today, uh, getting to hear from modern-day Lazarus, or since there's two of them, I guess, modern-day Lazaruses or modern-day Lazari. And there are some books that they've written that are available out in the lobby, uh, available with debit or credit card if you're interested. But I just want to remind you of what Palm Sunday means and why the story of Lazarus is so important. See, Palm Sunday came at the end of a three-and-a-half-year ministry where Jesus walked among the people. And he taught with such great authority that people began to whisper, is this... Is this the Messiah? He, he did miraculous things so that people started wondering, is this, is this the Messiah? People were thinking of the prophets, and they were wanting to be rescued. They were being oppressed by the Roman authorities and by the religious leaders. 
They were hoping that perhaps this would be the king of kings, the one who'd come to rescue us all. And about two to three weeks before Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead, two of his good friends, Mary and Martha, sent a messenger to tell Jesus that their brother Lazarus was deathly ill. And they wanted him to come quickly. John 11 says this. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now this does not make any sense. It says he loved them. He cared for them. And they were desperate for him to come. And yet because he loved them, he stayed two more days. Why would Jesus wait? It ended up being a several-day journey, and by the time he arrived, Lazarus had actually been dead. He was entombed. And Mary was incredibly upset with Jesus. She said, along with Martha, how upset she was that Jesus had not been there for them. Jesus had not answered their request. Have you ever been there? You needed Jesus to show up. You needed that prayer to be answered, and yet he seemed to wait. Notice what happens in John 11. Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. In that moment, he asked Martha to go and get Mary. And the crowd of mourners were there. And in that moment, it was we discovered a couple weeks ago that Jesus, seeing their tears, wept. Perhaps weeping because he feels our pain. He resonates with us in the midst of how we feel. See, God walking among us understands the struggle and the suffering that we go through. And knowing that he could rescue the situation and yet feeling their desperation. And so Jesus does something miraculous. He gives life to Lazarus. And they were worried. They were like, Jesus, don't go in there. He's already been decomposing. He smells terrible. And then he brings him back to life. And now any odor at that point was just bad hygiene, right? Lazarus is alive, and they were astounded. Jesus did it again. You see, a couple other times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, eyewitnesses walking around with Jesus, saw Jesus bring life. To someone who had died. And yet in both those other instances, Jesus said to them, now keep this quiet. Don't let word travel yet that I can give life to those who were dead. But this time there was no restriction. Lazarus was back to life and word began to travel. This must be the Messiah. At the same time, as those who heard the story were excited, those who were anticipating the Messiah were ecstatic, the religious leaders had the complete opposite response. They were enraged. Because all of a sudden, they're sensing that Jesus, if he's the Messiah, will threaten the power that they have, the, the wealth that they have, the authority that they have. 
because they were working with the Romans, the oppressive Roman government. And now Jesus, who had spoken harshly, rebuking the religious leaders about their self-centered motives and greed and their abuse of power. Now Jesus, there's more evidence that he is the Messiah. What's interesting is the exact same event led some to believe and others towards more disbelief. Same thing is true in our life. We can experience something, and then if we have eyes of faith, if we want to see God, we can see him in that. But if we don't, it could actually drive us further away from God. And so in this moment, in John chapter 11, we are let in on what the religious leaders were conspiring. It says, if we let him go, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Religion, politics, power, a terribly deadly mix. Many people denied that he was the Messiah, but many others hoped that he could be and wanted him to come into the city and take over to destroy those who'd been oppressing them. And that is why a few days after Lazarus was risen from the dead, Jesus comes into the city and they wanted to come in on a white horse to vanquish their enemies, but instead he rides in on a donkey. Listen to this in John 12. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now think about this. It was the Passover week, so people, Jews from across the planet, had come to Jerusalem, and word was traveling. There's a dead guy who's now alive, and look, he's right over there. You can talk to him. You can talk to his sisters. Isn't it possible that this Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to rescue us? And so it is no surprise that as Jesus comes riding into town, that they lay down palm branches, which was a sign of the king has arrived, shouting out, Hosanna, which means save us, rescue us, John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But not on a white horse, but on a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah, 500 years before this moment, had prophesied. Zechariah 9. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. Your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death. See, they wanted to be rescued now. They wanted to be rescued from the Romans. But what Jesus came to offer was a spiritual freedom, a freedom from spiritual captivity. Sometimes that's our relationship with God. We only trust him if he's willing to do what we want and to do it right now. And yet we see in this story that sometimes he decides to wait. And in waiting, we see even more the miraculous. Remember what Jesus said to Martha 
he reminded her that I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Well, don't you wish we could interview Lazarus? What is it like when you die? Well, many, a few years ago, many of you were here when we did a series called Imagine Heaven. Our senior pastor, John Burke, wrote this book. And really, it was the experiences of people who had near-death experiences that got John thinking about the possibility that there is a God. Eventually, these stories led him to the scriptures and where he found faith. And years later, he writes this book, Imagine Heaven, after interviewing many people who had incredible experiences after being clinically dead and coming back, and some with horrific experiences. And in that book, he notices the similarities between what they share and what's found in the scriptures. And so today, we're going to hear from John interviewing two of these that experienced life after death and who have returned. And so I know you'll find this fascinating. Listen in as we hear from Dr. Mary Neal, Howard Storm, and John Burke. Hey, well, Gateway uh, on all our campuses. Yeah. Here at North, you jumped the gun. I was going to say at all our campuses, Gateway South, Gateway Central, Gateway Branson on the internet, help me welcome Dr. Mary Neal and Howard Storm again. <laughs> We're so glad to, to, uh, to be able to have them back, and especially on this special Palm Sunday. And um, I want to start, you know, we've gotten to know each other now uh, since, since Imagine Heaven came out and you were first here. And, um, you know, Mary, you're, you're a medical doctor, uh, spine surgeon, right? Yes, I am. Uh, Howard is a, a college professor, former college professor, um, tenured. Uh, you know, when I was an engineer... Um, and, and skeptical of all this, and I'm sure there's, there are people like me who are here listening to this today, I would have been going, okay, wait a second. You're smart, educated people, and you're saying that you died and you experienced this resurrection life Jesus is talking about, you experienced Jesus and you came back? That sounds kooky. <laughs> what would you say to someone like me uh, about why you're talking about this? Well, I personally, I would say a couple of things. I would say, well, welcome to the club, <laughs> because uh, I still consider myself a skeptic. And I think it's important to be skeptical yeah. and not take things at face value, because I know that in the past I viewed everything through the lens of science. And now I view everything through the lens of God's love, which is different. But I think skepticism has its role, but I was a skeptic for sure. And at the time of my drowning, I, I was a surgeon for sure. And I would have claimed to have been a Christian in that I took my kids to church. I bought into the concept of being a good person and that sort of thing. Um, but I have to say, I, I look back at myself as a cultural Christian. I, I'm not sure I really uh, believed it. Hmm. Um, and I will tell you that uh, during my experience, I had this absolutely remarkable uh, experience of being held by Christ, of being loved by Christ, of experiencing God's pure, absolute uh, love and acceptance and, and um, being known. And 
welcomed and I had this incredible experience of a life review and being released to heaven and being in heaven and welcomed and all these incredible things. And this is all while you're pinned under a waterfall? Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my spirit was released up to heaven. And, and how long were you pinned under that waterfall? 30 minutes, wow. which is too long. Yeah. But the <laughs> yeah, that's usually too long. I can't hold my breath, but 20 minutes. No, but part of that, <laughs> exactly, right. Uh, but part of it that um, addresses the skepticism is that when I was ultimately told that I had to come back, I was given a whole laundry list of things that I still needed to do. And Like what? I will tell you, none of the things on the list were things I wanted to do. What do you Some mean? of it had to do with this sort of thing. You know, sharing my experiences with other people, which was of no interest to me. And you've told me you're, you're more introverted, medical doctor. You live in Wyoming. You don't yes. need to, I, no. I know, you don't need to write books and travel exactly. around talking. Right. It's not that great, is um, it? <laughs> And there were a number of things on the list that uh, I was absolutely not interested in doing. In fact, there was nothing that I thought would be great. <laughs> and one of the things uh, that was certainly at that time and continues to be more challenging was being told about the coming and unexpected death of my oldest son, who at the time was only nine. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But you can imagine that when I then came back and then you know, went through multiple surgeries, my knees were sort of destroyed and... I had uh, many weeks in ICU, that whole thing. But then I spent many months, about six months in rehab. And during that time, I not only had to try to figure out what had happened to me, what I actually thought had happened to me, but I was very motivated to find an alternative explanation. Because spent, of what Jesus exactly, said about I had spent many months trying to discount my experience, trying to come up with any other scientific medical any kind of explanation other than a spiritual one because I knew that if I could disprove my own account then I would be able to disregard everything I'd been told including what I'd been told about my son's coming death mm -hmm. so I forget about the skepticism I more than anyone else wanted to disprove my account mm -hmm. did you I mean did you ask Jesus why when he it was in your <laughs> I am a was very, it in your life review when well it was when I was as my kids would say when I was being kicked out yes <laughs> you weren't kicked out <laughs> I <laughs> well I didn't want to come back that's for sure and of course I mean I'm a a self-reliant well-educated person who knows what's best and I said of course why why my son why first of all why do I have to go back but then why in the world would would this happen how can that possibly make sense and I was immediately taken back to my life review where I had been shown repeatedly again and again and again the truth of God's promise that beauty does come of all things whether we see it or not beauty does come of all things and reminded that it was an issue of trust if I trust God's promises then I can maintain a state of joy and a state of love despite my circumstances. And so if the plan for my son's life, meaning his death, was to come to fruition, then it was a matter of my trusting God's plan. And going back to Martha and Mary, God knew, I mean, uh, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but it was a matter of trust for Martha and Mary, trusting that 
there's a bigger plan, there's a bigger purpose. Whoa. And whether their prayer right then and there was answered or not, it would be answered. And and ten was it ten years later? Ten years later. Your son did die. He did. He was hit by a car and killed. And how have you dealt with that? Well, well, I'm not going to pretend like having a profound spiritual experience makes me immune from the emotions of daily life. Mm-hmm. I love this boy more than life itself, and I would get, let, gladly give up my own life. Um, and so I, I was then and still am emotionally devastated. Grief, I always say grief is the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> because it... Um, it's part of what I am, yeah. there's no doubt. But I will also say that on my most sad day, I would still in all sincerity be able to say that I also had an incredible sense of joy because of my trust in God's promises. And that is something that I think is very difficult for people to necessarily understand because this idea that, okay, well, gee, I have faith, I have trust, and we've had this incredible spiritual experience, so that makes everything great. Life is perfect, and that's not the deal. But I know that even when I'm facing terrible struggles or sorrow, I still experience incredible gratitude. Mm. I mean, you, you mentioned laying down the palms or why I would lay down the palms and it's out of gratitude. Mm. It's not out of, gee, this is my king, I have to do it. It's, it's the most intense emotion of not just love and being loved, but gratitude. Gratitude mm. for opening up this ability for us to live a joy-filled life. Mm. It's this freedom and love, and it, it's, it's absolute gratitude. Like, thank you, Lord. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. Well, okay, so now let's go back to the skeptic, though, Howard. So, <laughs> so, so you were a tenured college professor, an avowed atheist. What would you, why would you be talking about this? And uh, what would you say to the skeptic? Prior to my experience, if you had paid me $100,000 to sit here and do this, I would have laughed at you. Told not you worth it. <laughs> um, I thought, 38 years old, you know, I had um, advanced degrees in my field, and I had power in the university, and all of my friends were atheists and cynics. Um, I thought Christianity was for weak, adult-brained people who believed in fairy tales, and. I didn't just believe that. I mean, we, we talked about that amongst ourselves, and um, to my incredible shame now, when I met Christians as, a, as their teacher, um, I tried to convince them that uh, they need to grow up and um, let go of that stuff and um, get with the program, which was a materialistic, scientific view of life. There was a beautiful little woman, Lisa, who used to bring her her ratty little Bible around with her and try and tell me stuff like, God loves me. And I, and I thought, oh, isn't such a sweet, innocent idiot, you know? <laughs> um, there, there was a nun praying for me. And I thought, well, you know, if it gets her off, like, you know, that's her thing. You know? <laughs> and 
Later, I found out that I probably wouldn't be alive today. I would have never called out to Jesus if she hadn't been praying for me every day for 13 years. So, but so, I didn't know any of that then. And in your experience, you died. You said you were you were more alive than ever before, standing there at your yeah, bedside. And, and, and the at thing, first, it was good. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was so good that I, I was absolutely convinced that I was having the best life ever. Except that certain things weren't working for me. Like nobody would interact with me. And the biggest problem was there was this um, piece of meat in the bed that looked exactly like me, but it was hard for me to rationally explain to myself why that meat was in the bed. Meaning your body. Yeah. You were seeing and, your body. And I'm standing there like questioning it and that, trying to communicate with my wife and my roommate. And people um, came outside the room and said, we know all about you. Um, we've been waiting for you. Hurry up. You've got to come with us. And so... I assumed that they were um, the um, medical staff to take me to my surgery, which I had been waiting for for 10 hours. And I know that uh, Dr. Neal can testify that with a perforated duodenum, um, 10 hours is um, too late. Too long. Yeah, do all doctors told me my life expectancy was two, two three hours, five hours tops. Anyways, um, so I, I, with a little reservation, went with them and... Uh, at first, it looked like it was going to be okay, but eventually uh, they took me into abject darkness, and they um, had their uh, way with me, and you all don't have a filthy enough brain to understand what I mean by that, so don't even try. And they took me apart, literally, and it hurt like hell. And in that desperation, I, st I prayed because when I was a little boy, my parents used to drop us off at church and I went to Sunday school, which was really fun because we did arts and crafts in Sunday school, and I liked that. <laughs> but it also, um, they told us about Jesus, who when I was a little boy in the middle of the night, and I'm sure all of you can relate to this, um, when the alligators and the bears and the lions and tigers were snapping at my toes, you know, the little boy, you remember the, the, those guys, you know, under your bed coming out? I used to ask Jesus to chase them away, and he, all, he would always show up and chase them away. So mm -hmm. I went back there. I went back to a little child, and like, maybe this Jesus thing is real. I didn't know. Um, what I'm trying to tell you something that's really important, I didn't know, but I asked him. I called out to him, and to my complete amazement and surprise, he came he put me back together. He loved me. He embraced me. He rubbed my back like a, a mama or a daddy who loves their little boy. And he took me out of that place, and he gave me a life review and um, answered all my questions and straightened me out. And he just did one really terrible thing to me. He told me that I had to come back and try and um, do this life differently than the way I've been doing it. And so that was 33 years ago. And I'm working on it, Jesus. You know, I'm working on it, buddy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> well, and, and, and it really is, uh, your story really is what Jesus did on the cross with two thieves, yep. both guilty. One mocks him and says, hey, if you're really who you say, get us off the cross. He said nothing. The yep. other just said, 
will you just remember me when you come in your kingdom? And he said, you'll be with me today. Today. Just that simple heart turning to him. Today. And that's what you're saying. You know, in, in, so I have researched a thousand near-death experiences like this, and, and, uh, which is how I came to know you guys. And I've come to believe, you know, many talk about this border or boundary they knew they couldn't cross and still come back. You know, which is why I think there's still that, whatever these are, it's not full biological death, and you still had that chance to cry out to him, and he rescued you. And, and both of you experienced the presence of Jesus. And I, I just want to go there for a second. Yeah. What was Jesus like? And, and, you know, people want to know, what do you look like? And what, you know? Right. But why would you lay your palm branch down to make him king of your life? I would say that my experience of Jesus, of course, is indescribable. It's trying to describe something for which we have no words and no vocabulary, which is why we always talk in metaphors and analogies, even yeah. in the Bible. It's all metaphor, yeah. al- you know, analogies, because there really aren't the words. But Well, and, and part it, of was your, your experience, you've told me, was truly of another dimension, right? right. Time is another dimension. Time, dimension. There, it's, it's like trying it's to take different. a three-dimensional colorful experience and describe it to flat black and white people. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, for example, um, when I am asked actually what Jesus looked like, my answer is always the same, which is that he looked like bottomless kindness and compassion. But that doesn't make sense. Those aren't visual attributes, but that's how I would actually describe what he looked like to me. But if you then but press he had me on, too? He, for me, he had a physical form, head, arms, legs. Like what you um, would think? Well, no. <laughs> no. Not like the Jesus that I would have imagined because, again, it's this. Well, yeah, but you told this, me you imagined a blue hair, blonde eyed Jesus. Well, that's because that was the picture that was on my wall. But He was Jewish. You know, that, I know that, but we live in America. I grew up in the Midwest. It's a blonde, you know, there are a lot He's of Nordic. Exactly, yeah. right. Um, but even when pressed on it, it all made sense to me because if you put a hundred of us in the same room, And I do believe that we are created beings. I do believe that we are created in God's image. But if you take 100 of us or 200 of us and put us in the same room, the reality is that we don't really have the same skin color, hair color, eye color. It's all a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And that is what Jesus was when I looked at him in terms of the physical attributes. It was a shift in... Again, it's time dimension. I'm not sure what the right description was, but I could see things simultaneously, for example, colors simultaneously, but they didn't all mix together to make brown. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, eye color was all of the eye colors all at the same time. But, I mean, that doesn't make sense in this world, but it uh, it made sense to me because Jesus is us. And we are so many different things. So why would Jesus have one hair color or one eye color? Like he, he represented, well, we are he created in the image of God, and so all of us together, and so you saw a little of yes, all of us. Yes, all of us. Interesting. What about you, Howard, in your experience? At first, he comes yeah. into this outer darkness, and you said it was a light brighter than right. the sun. And I think Mary was very articulate and um, well-spoken in the way that she described that. But I also, um, in my question and answer thing with him, we 
went back in time and walked around um, the Holy Land and um, I um, and later experiences um, I decided that I wanted to show him as a um, as a man as he had appeared for roughly 30 years 2,000 years ago so um, he gave me that and then I struggle I struggled to do a painting of that I've actually I've done a lot of paintings of him since and um, I've got that um, on the cover of my book about Jesus, and I've got it on my website. And I think it's a pretty good facsimile of what he looked like as a person because it's important that people understand that he is um, so relatable. When I've been to the Holy Land three times, and I'm going back in 11 months. I love the Holy Land. And um, one of the cool things about the Holy Land is, like, so many people over there look like Jesus, the Jesus that walked on the earth. You know, um, really, really cool-looking, you know, Mediterranean uh, men. You know, um, that's so. You, so you experienced then. You're saying both because you said at first he came in this brilliant man of light who right. grabbed you and took you out of there, and then later you saw this. Yes. Yeah. And. Um, I can talk more about what he felt like because he talk held me that. for a long time and I held on to him for dear life. I, see, I was afraid that if I let go of him, I might drift away back into that dark place and that was terrifying to me. So I was clinging to him. And um, he is, um, he, in his bodily form, you know, he's a carpenter, he's, he's strong. I mean. I, I just can't stand pictures of him as wimpy. Um, he, he's, a, he's a guy guy, you know? He's, uh, <laughs> you know? And um, I re uh, really, really um, was amazed at how relatable he was, how likable he is, how much he likes us. Because after all, um, he is in fact the designer of us and the creator of us um, all all of us were made, designed and made by him. And, you know, he likes his work. He likes his handiwork. <laughs> and I, one thing I want to add, most especially, is that uh, he finds us delightful company and is willing to spend as long as we want mm. in, with him. And I, I don't know how he does that with billions of souls, but, he, um, you know, he made time and he's got all the time. He, he literally... It's not a saying. He has all the time in the world to hang with us. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Mary, you wrote you wrote uh, a book recently. Um, your first one was about your experience. This is really a, more about what? Well, and why did you write it? The Since first you don't book, like to write and you don't like to travel <laughs> and talk to people. Exactly. <laughs> I am being obedient. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the first book was a good story, and the first book really was sort of an accounting of my experiences, and truth be told, it really was sort of to check it off my list of things I had to do. I knew that that was, had been one of the expectations, and so I wrote that book uh, really not intending that anyone was necessarily going to read it, and I included only what I thought was important. I didn't really ask anyone else. And what became clear to me over the years were a couple of things, one of which was that there are many parts of my experience that, that resonated with people and really made a difference for people in their own lives that I hadn't included in the first book. But then more importantly, I don't care whether it's my story, Howard's story, 
any of the stories of spiritual experiences. If it's a good story, that's great, but so what? It doesn't make a difference in people's lives. And what I realized is that a good story is only worthwhile if it contains elements that really can be taken and used for transformation. Yeah. And so yeah. the yeah. second book really focuses on, okay, it's a much more personally challenging book because it says, okay, fine. It's easy to look at me and say, well, gee, I've had this transformation to trust and everything's great because I had this wonderful experience. But I am absolutely convinced that every person, every single person here can have that same transformation Amen. Amen. from hope or faith. And, and I'm not discounting faith, but, but I use trust as a way to differentiate it. Yeah. Making that transformation to trust in God's promises, I believe, is what is life. And it is what brings this joy-filled life that God intends for us. It's regardless Jesus' prayer, of, right? Yeah, regardless Bringing of struggles. Right, and it's that transformation that brings heaven to daily life. Yeah. And I believe that transformation is available to everyone. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the second book, yeah. really, is to challenge everyone to say, okay, well, make that transformation. Yeah. Because I know it's possible. Yeah. And Howard, uh, your book, was, you just wrote a book about Jesus. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, b both were fantastic. And I, w what struck me, though, is that you didn't say anything about your near-death experience in it. It was just about Jesus. Um, why'd you do that? And, and, and why should we lay our palm branches down and make him king of our lives? Having the opportunity to go to heaven or to reject God, reject Jesus, reject heaven— is our other opportunity. If that's what you want, you can have that too. That's important. But I don't want to talk about pie in the sky and the great by and by, which is a cynical way that you know, people talk about them. I want to talk about right now. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And in that book, that's got some amazing stuff in it. I mean, stuff that's like, it takes years to t totally sink in. He says, may my joy be in you and may your joy be complete. Mary mentioned joy. Mm -hmm. Before I knew Jesus, I was chasing after happiness. Some of you may have tried some of the tools that I use to achieve happiness. Adultery, alcohol, drugs, fame, power, and my favorite, control, mm. controlling people. Mm. I mean, I was an intellectual bully. Mm. Um, I'm smarter than you. I know you, you are. Know, no. <laughs> 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 and what I was doing was I, was I was trying to find something that I didn't have. And the way I like to put it, there was like an emptiness inside of me. And I, was, and I pour this stuff in and pour this stuff in and pour this stuff in. And the problem is that it only lasted minutes, mm. um, sometimes seconds. It just ne it, it was never fulfilling. And, and it, it, I always felt more empty yeah. sometime after. And ever since I've known Jesus, I have that abiding love and that abiding joy in my life. And that's what I want 
I want to share that. I, you know, it's like I, I've got this most wonderful, like the, the best candy in the world, the best cake, you know, um, yeah. spare ribs if you want. You know, I've got this stuff to share, and I'm trying to give it out, and people are saying, you know, I don't want your stuff. And I said, it's not my stuff. You know, it's, <laughs> it's his stuff, and I want to give it away, and you can have it, and all you have to do is just really ask for it, and you're going to get it. And I tell people all the time, just ask them. Really, really get down and ask them. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's thank Howard and Mary on all our campuses for uh, thank you so much. I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus wept, there was another time that he also shed tears. And it wasn't on the cross. He actually rode into the city and they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And there's this moment captured in Luke 19. As he looks over the city, realizing that some of these same people shouting Hosanna will later shout, crucify him. And it says in the scriptures that he looked over the city and he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Within 40 years, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people of Israel were without a nation until 1948. Something also in the scriptures prophesied. And I want you in this moment to put yourself in the story. Is there anything that is holding you back from saying, save me, rescue me, of making him the king of your heart? Instead, when we ignore God's ways and when we ignore God's love for us, he gives us what we want. But instead, we can have peace and joy and forgiveness if we just lay our hearts down and acknowledge we need him. So on this day, Palm Sunday, we're going to sing a song together called Hosanna. And I want to invite you to lay down that proverbial palm branch Lay down your heart. Lay down anything that you're holding on to that you might follow after him.